Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Police were one of the biggest, if not the biggest, band worldwide in the early to mid-80s. They released five stellar albums, numerous hit singles, and they introduced a lot of people to ska and reggae. Though they didn't play reggae or ska in a traditional sense, their music was informed by the genres, particularly in drummer Stuart Copeland's beats. For a lot of people, getting into the police was the first step towards diving into the wide world of ska and reggae. Today we bring on Police's drummer Stuart Copeland who influenced many, many drummers, including me. Aaron, when I first met you, you were playing drums a lot. Would you say Stuart Copeland was one of your biggest influences? I would say he was my biggest influence. Biggest influence. When I remember the early version of Flat Planet, it was extremely police-influenced. Yeah, but even as we moved away from musically sounding like the police, my drumming was always like influenced by Stuart Copeland the way he pushed the beat, the way he played, really emphasized the hi-hats, like doing lots of stuff on the hi-hats, having a high-pitched snare. Mm -hmm. Really anything I gleaned from him, I was trying to put into the band. Splash cymbals too. Splash cymbals, yes. Yeah. Records used to be relatively expensive. The Police album I had in my house was Synchronicity. What was your big Police album? Um, Probably uh, Regatta de Blanc and uh, Zenyana Mandata, but you know... I had the box set, so I really just liked all of it, including the B-sides. Excellent. First off, I want to say that um, I really enjoyed reading uh, your new book, the Stuart Copeland's Police Diaries. Really cool to kind of like, yeah, just fill in all Well, you're the first person I've talked to who's actually read it. Okay. (laughs) Aaron's an avid reader. Yes. I haven't actually seen the book. It's going to arrive any day now, I suppose, but I actually haven't seen the book. Uh, I got a PDF, so but and I have a I have a actual book on the way. But I got to go through the PDF. It looks really cool. It's got all the images of it's got the images of the diary and the diary entries. So and then the cool photos. So it looks awesome. Yeah, cool. Uh, you know, all my you know, don't look squint too hard at the accounts. Uh, my <laughs> arithmetic was not great. You know, but the, the doodles the doodles are not art. They're just like a, a diseased mind 
doing something with my left hand while I'm talking on the phone. Yeah, some one of the funny things to read uh, through the diary is some of the stuff that you wrote at the time, and then you comment in present time. And a lot of the stuff's like, oh, this thing's coming up. And then you're like, that thing didn't come up, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. <laughs> well, yeah, well, there's three layers to it. Well, uh, several. Uh, there's the doodles, uh, but there's the, the daily notes, you know, how much we got paid for a show, uh, how many attended, you know, all, all that stuff, how well we played and all that, so on. Then there's the modern commentary, but the other part is the 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 secret diaries that that, that oh, yeah. I, they weren't connected to any particular day. Just whenever I had to get stuff off my mind, I just start writing furiously without thinking about what I was even really writing, just to get it off my chest. And that's where all the grievance uh, nurturing, uh, crack pocket schemes, uh, you know, <laughs> wild fantasies, uh, revenge theories, you know, all the good stuff. To me, looking back on it, it's it, it's comedic. Right. So you um, recently found the diaries. Is that sort of what prompted this project? No, I've had them all along. And I've always wanted to do something with them. And I finally got around to it. I found a publisher who who had a great concept of how to present them. And um, that's what it took, really. Yeah. And it covers uh, 76, so before police, to 78, which is kind of right before or right as police are really starting to blow up. We were just starting to get our first hits. Uh, it was just starting to take off. It's sort of, you know, the the when we take when we went off, off to America, uh, is where the the movie that I made picks up, mm-hmm. um, and I sort of cover a bit of America, but mainly it's about the starving years before that, which is much more interesting than the rest of it, the the success part because the success part was kind of repetitive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you retell the story of the police in retrospect, you know, it feels like, Oh, it's inevitable. But when you, when you're in the moment, it doesn't feel inevitable that it's going to be successful. Oh man. The, the struggle, the every day, the grind, get up, pick, go over to so-and-so, pick up the truck, drive over to Stingsways, pick up the gear, go over to rehearsal, rehearsal for 10 hours, go to a gig, go to another gig, you know, just like this relentless activity uh, makes me tired looking at it. When you think about that time period, what's what's like the the vibe? What's what do you see in your mind, or what do you smell? London, London. What does London smell like? Um, there's a particular. It doesn't smell like that anymore, by the way. Okay, because they've cleaned up the smog. The famous London smog isn't there anymore. Mm. But it's basically car fumes. You know, uh, the smell of. I, I guess you get it, it, it combined with the moisture in the air. Uh, there's just, there was a, there was a particular London smell. Yeah. And the only food and the only food, the Indian food, that's the other thing. Yeah. I was going to say every single Indian meal was, was savored and celebrated on the page because that was the only food worth eating at the time. Sure. You know, English cuisine now is really spectacular. Yeah. Uh, London is just a great place to dine, but then. It was Mike's Greasy Spoon Cafe, uh, which did have double egg sausage chips, beans, and a slice, which was fantastic. Um, But the only other good food was Indian food. On any high street in any English town, there would be, you know, the Gate of India restaurant or the Taj Mahal restaurant or whatever. And it would be the cheapest and biggest and tastiest meal available in the entire nation. Post-gig meal after a show in that era, what were you getting? Um, sag ghost with pilau rice. Hell yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, 
so one of the things that your diaries show too is that like during this era like you're going through some serious struggle like you're getting evicted you don't have any money yeah you're working all the time it's and it really i mean it really doesn't feel like it's going to pay off except that you and sting really really believe in this project well that's the miracle is that that's that we stuck at it exactly and then even more miraculous is when andy insisted on joining yeah uh, a, 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 a fake punk rock band going nowhere and Andy insisted on joining. <laughs> I asked him years later, you know, what what were you thinking? And he said, I don't know, mate. Should have stuck with Neil Sadaka. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really funny because you talk about that a bunch about how you guys are, you know, you're, you're fake punks trying to be in the punk scene and that having Andy Summers join the project was the final nail in the coffin of you guys pretending you're punks. Well, they, everybody knew us and written, you know, the bands all came to our shows to cop licks sure. because we had chops beyond what any of them had. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I remember Paul Simonon and Sting heads together talking about bass technique, only he didn't want, um, he didn't want, um, you know, Joe Strummer to catch him giving a shit about his instrument. <laughs> Yeah, you did mention in the book a few times The Clash, specifically Chopping Licks, and the critics not believing you about it. Well, I mean, I'm speaking generally. I wouldn't accuse them. In fact, we copped a major lick from them. Oh, which one? The Well, playing reggae. Skinny boys playing reggae. Oh, word. Yeah, just that move in general. <laughs> I want to talk more about the book, but I want to move into the early 80s because I specifically want to get your take on Two-Tone Ska because... As the police is blowing up, this is what's also happening in England. And I'd love to know kind of what your perspective on that was and and when you first started noticing these bands. Well, it was the Specials and Madness were the first two. And Selector, who didn't get quite as far. Um, And it started with those two, really. And the the two-tone movement out of uh, Birmingham. Now, Ska goes way back earlier than those guys those were the white guys who picked it up um and they were the two-tone bands uh racially as well as that was their motif and so the origins of the music in jamaica don't i'm not such an expert on that but when it appeared out of birmingham birmingham uh england that part there was what i saw and i remember seeing the specials at uh the hammersmith palace um just burned down the building wow they had so much energy on stage their drummer was fantastic you know just everything about them was brilliant and the wildest wackiest craziest most deranged individual on the stage i later learned was the boss man of everything the 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 Svengali, the genius who created the whole circuit a record label and everything that would be young one jerry dammers yeah were you seeing these bands uh, before they started having hits on the on the radio, or did, did were you witnessing this movement as it was happening in popular culture? Well, they uh, must have to be headlining, and uh, I can't remember if it was a full house or anything. I just remember the band, but you know, to be headlining at the Hammersmith Palais, they must have made some progress. I think I'd heard <laughs> of them, sure. um, but I don't know they were on the radio yet. And at that specials gigs with Suggsy was there saying, oh, man, these guys are great. But wait till you see my band. We're called Madness. And I said, yeah, sure, brother. <laughs> did they live up to the hype for you? They did. Hell specials yeah. was still my favorite of all sure. of them. They were, they were my favorite. 
uh, but Madness were cool. They had a, that that whole look with the pork pie hat. They had that Suggsy had that dance that he, I don't know where he got it from, but it sort of patented, you know, the mad the Madness dance that that sort of I don't even know what you'd call it. Um, the, the ska dance. Well, there's two. The other guys, the toasters, are all jumping around the stage, kicking their legs out and go, dancing. But the Suggsy, the front man, just had that really cool, understated kind of shuffle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then yeah, then Chaz, the I guess he's the toaster of madness. He's got a really cool dance too. That's very, very cool and coordinated. Yeah. Yeah, very extroverted, very out there. Madness is madness of the one who took it all the way to the top, but. The others, Selector and Specials and, well, UB40 were part of that scene, but you could never call them a Scott. Yeah. But they were absolutely the same, in the same scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The beat also. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the beat came a little bit later, I think. Yeah, they came a little later. But we toured with all those groups, and we were all kind of out of the same stables, and there was that one summer in particular where we did all the summer festivals on the continent in Europe. Uh, and we were all there along with Scoffish, the cramps, uh, you know, all these other strange groups that my brother miles either managed or had on his record label. The specials, I believe. So it might've been their very first U S tour or shortly thereafter, they played a bunch of shows with you in the U S yes. Um, so you were still kind of at the club level at that point, or were you you, you were getting bigger by then? I think we were into th- we were into theaters by then. When we were doing clubs, we were, you know, it was just local bands opening, most of whom had more equipment than us. We were always kind of intimidated. The support act, you know, plays their set, you know, the local heroes. Then they clear the stage, and there's one skinny drum set and a couple of amps. <laughs> Do you know how? It ended up being that the specials came with you to the U.S.? Well, my brother Ian was the agent for the English invasion of the late 70s and early 80s. And he went out and he went to these cities. He was working at an agency booking southern rock bands down in Macon, Georgia, Paragon Agency. But since he had just come from London where the scene was just busting out, he thought, well, America can do this. And so he found, he went to Philadelphia, he went to Boston, he went to... Um, you know, or to these different cities, Chicago and so on. And he'd s- ask around, where do the weird kids hang out? And they say, well, there is nowhere for weird kids to hang out. And, and so he'd find a club and say, what are you doing Thursday? I got nothing Thursday. Okay, how about we'll call it punk night or new wave night? Then they'll all these weird looking kids uh, and see what happens. And so the first, and then he created a circuit um, across America, mostly in the Northeast. And the first band, Miles and Ian brought over, uh, Miles managed a band called Squeeze, who had to be called UK Squeeze in, in America. And they yeah. put them on that circuit. Uh, Grendel's Lair in Philadelphia, uh, the Rat Club in Boston, CBGB's or Max's in New York, and, and so on. And when Squeeze finished their tour, they dropped the bus with the gear in it, two amps and a, you know, actually they had their own drums. We arrived that day and picked up the, the van with the two amps and <laughs> took off and played the same circuit and followed by the specials, followed by the beat, followed by XTC, uh, flock of seagulls and 
my brother Ian created that circuit, which enabled the new wave invasion of the late seventies. I mean, were the police the biggest band of that new wave invasion? Because it feels like that might be the case in terms of like U.S. success. Well, we were yes, we were out front of all of them. Um, got no. Well, I guess we had better songs. I, I don't know for one reason <laughs> or another, or we got there, or we got there first. You know, Squeeze, Squeeze had great songs. Uh, Specials had great songs. Um, and the beat, too. Um, I guess we got there first. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the case of the Specials and the Selector, you know, these bands didn't, they didn't last long enough, I think, to really make an impact. I mean, they did a few tours and then they broke up. Well, they were big and complicated. Yes, yeah, very much so. <laughs> and very young, very young and with no real idea of how the music industry works. Um, I don't know whatever happened. You probably know what happened to Jerry Dammer. What happened to that guy? He, you know, I never saw him say, or, he was always insane. And yet he created that whole scene, that whole Birmingham scene. Whatever happened to him? This is what I've heard. Cause he was supposed to be, the, the specials did a reunion, like full band reunion. Like, I don't know. What was it? Eight years ago. And he was going to do it. And then I heard didn't hear it from him personally. I heard that he didn't want to do it because he didn't want to just play old songs. He wanted to do new songs too. And so he backed out and they're like, this is what people want. They want to hear all the hits. Well, when you go see Paul McCartney, it's a great show, great show. And then he plays his new song. And I understand why he wants to do that. He has every right to play new material, but I, I think I'll take a break. I'm going to go take a leak. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, then the next one comes up. Ah, I think I'll go buy a t-shirt. He does, he, he, he does DJing um, and he does like, he has other projects that are kind of weird. So I think he's very much like, a, I'm an artist and this is what artists do kind of guy. Yeah, I hate them. Uh, they scare me. <laughs> I call them believers. Sure. There are some musicians who actually believe that we have a God appointed mission and that our work, it isn't. We all, every musician on the planet, every human being can play music and should play music it's not sacred it belongs to all the people um this idea where some you know in our complex modern society where we specialize and i get to play the music and you get to buy it that's actually not how music was evolved for homo sapiens it's a bonding cultural experience um which is uh it's theorized that the reasons uh sapiens beat neanderthal is because music bonded us together in larger groups. So us 20 Homo sapiens could go kick those four Neanderthals out of the fruit tree. <laughs> and um, so the idea that some musicians have, and I won't mention names, that it's this some higher purpose. I love music. It moves me. It transports me. It's what I, I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. But it's not some God-appointed mission. It's not sacred. It's just, it's, it's cornflakes. It's for us all to enjoy. Uh, you know, it makes us feel it's really effective in church. God loves music. Um, and for various other things, sex, of course. And, you know, music is the only art form that will physically usurp motor control of your body, force you to do weird body twitching motions, which are explicitly sexual. And I, you know, I, I agree that music is really powerful, wonderful, beautiful stuff, but it's not sacred. Jerry, get off your fucking soapbox and play some music. <laughs> well said. Damn.
you really nailed that. That was awesome. What were they like to tour with? Oh, great. They're a great hang. Uh, that, you know, we all enjoyed it because we were all on the up and up. We were all rising. We were all optimistic. We were all enjoying the rocket ship. And um, I got Super 8 footage of all of them, by the way, since I had full access on and off stage. Uh, so I've got the licensing nightmare from hell <laughs> <laughs> with all those bands, and including bands of the previous area, too. I, I call it uh, bands of the cusp, you know, mm -hmm. the cusp between long hair and short hair, punk and hippies and yada, yada, yada. But, I'll, you know, it's sitting in my vault for my private entertainment getting it released oh my god yeah licensing nightmare so during this time period um you released a zenyatta mandata that's your third record the police's two most overt ska songs man in a suitcase and canary in a coal mine are on this record yeah okay now you've dated it. yes we were quite we were pretty successful then we were headlining festivals at that point in europe i've always wondered if the emergence of two-tone had any influence on you guys doing those two songs no um no they didn't it was don letts who caused all that to happen uh you know that name i do know don letts yeah he was a amongst other things he was a dj at the roxy yeah so he, the thing was that even glue sniffing punks got to chill sometimes yeah and there's no such thing <laughs> as chill punk music so don letts would play hostile dub reggae which was really dark, suitably angry, uh, suitably hostile, but chill. And um, that's where all the skinny white musicians discovered the upside down reggae groove. And that's, uh, I think, I give credit to Clash for being the first band to attempt to play it. But all of us were listening to the drums and going, Topper Heaton, me, Rat Scabies, and the rest of us were listening to, what the hell is he doing? What the, what, what? No backbeat, the, the snare and the bass drum landing together uh, <laughs> instead of in opposition. Um, I have, had actually already figured this out because I discovered reggae in college in Berkeley, California. Um, so I had already done that calculation. And I also had my secret sauce, which was my Arabic upbringing. Yeah. And the fact that Arabic music shares some fundamental building blocks with reggae. That emphasis on the third beat of the bar, hide the one. There is no one. One shall not be expressed. <gasps> two, three, four. <gasps> two, three, four. <laughs> two, three, four. Uh, and so it came a lot easier to me. And while the others had to kind of study it and execute it, what they studied, it was already in my DNA. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, Baladi music. Baladi Melody music. And you, you grew up in uh, a chunk of your childhood was in Beirut. Yeah. Well, I'm, I left America when I was two months old mm -hmm. um, and didn't get back till I was 18. A lot of people who are not Jamaican that uh, come to play reggae and, and Scott, there is there's a little it's a little stilted because, like you said, it's not the music that they grew up with. They're trying to train their brains to play it backwards. Well, Charlie Brown, uh, was what was he? He was Madness, or was he UB40? He, they, yeah, some of the drummers really had it. I mean, they really nailed it. I wasn't stiff at all. Um, mm -hmm. Because those kids grew up in a multiracial society. And strangely, there was racial tension in England, but not between the Jamaicans and the working class white kids. Mm -hmm. It was between 
the Jamaicans, the working class white kids against the Indian and Pakistani. Yeah. Somehow, by some miracle, because it was actually, let's be honest, it was kind of the skinheads were racists. There was sure. a lot, a, yeah. a, a strong racist element within skinheaddom, and skinheads were very adjacent to ska. And um, a lot of the ska energy came from skinheads. And the miracle is that they didn't have a problem with their Jamaican brothers and sisters, I guess because they liked the music and weren't <laughs> threatened by them. Whereas the immigrants from India and Pakistan were highly educated and were taking better jobs and somehow regarded as more of a threat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those, those two-tone groups, um, literally black and white, all happy playing together as a rare thing. For sure. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you went to college in Berkeley, um, what kind of, how did you get hip to reggae? And what, what was the stuff that you ca caught your attention first? Well, I was the boss jock at the boss radio station playing the boss hits that my boss told me to play. <laughs> uh, at WKLX. Um, Berkeley, California. And uh, I was the guy handling imports. Uh, since I was the guy who had been outside of America, I got imports. And amongst the imports, which was mostly prog rock out of England in those days, um, suddenly there's Bob Marley, Catch a Fire. And uh, as soon as I heard that, whoa, uh, this is a whole new world. And so that's where I discovered reggae. Interesting. Yeah. And you also in the book talk about seeing Bob Marley and the Whalers in Leeds in like um, 76, I believe. Oh, yeah. On our way back down from Newcastle. That's written in a way where it suggests that that's a turning point for you. But getting to watch Carlton Barrett, the drummer, and really kind of studying what he's doing. Well, I may have overemphasized the turning point, but it certainly was a big step in that direction to see him do it. Um. And basically a drum solo all the way through. Drum fills every other bar. Uh, really busy. And yet somehow not intruding. Uh, on Because I guess Marley had such charisma at the front of the stage that the rest of the band could do what, could go crazy wild and not take any of the 
light off of off of Marley. That's definitely something about your drumming that you brought to the police. Mm-hmm. Banging banging a lot of shit. But yes. doing fills in places <laughs> where <laughs> maybe uh maybe a standard rock drummer wouldn't do a fill there, but it, it works really well. Well, I don't do them there anymore either. No. By the way, doing my uh, deranged for orchestra, police songs deranged for orchestra. That last um, you know, that vocal pickup into the chorus, you know, every breath you mm-hmm. now that I'm the arranger. And I put those vocals there. Uh, I don't want a drum fill right on top of that. I want space. I want that vocal to be all alone, and the drums come in on the downbeat. You know, le- you know. So I actually have a different philosophy about all that now. But when I was young, I just used to like to bang my drums. Oh yeah, young young drummers, way different than a than a drummer with some some years. Yep. You were also you were you got really interested in splash symbols. Uh, so splash symbols weren't really popular at the time when you started getting into splash symbols. Well, I had to get them from a toy store. Yeah, because they were like novelty, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'd seen them play. You know, Louis Belson and you know that era of drummers. They used splash symbols. So wait, you're telling us that your initial your initial splash symbols were just like straight up from like toy toys kits? No. Yeah, way. <laughs> and and I talked because when I got a. Uh, a sponsorship deal with tasty i said hey you should be making these they said well no because they only you know in a rock environment they're only gonna last three gigs we can't sell a product that's gonna last three gigs um but they put their metallurgists to work and they figured out how to make a symbol a splash symbol that's very very light that will survive more than three gigs Tight, very tight, uh high-pitched snare that's another thing i i don't feel like other bands were doing that at the time am i is that correct? Well, that was my rebellion against Old Wave, where when I was with Curved Dare, some producers came in. Uh, we recorded our first album. It was fantastic. What an experience. Boy, that was some of the most fun I've ever had. And the record company rejected it. Um, and they said, no, we got to do it again. Uh, we'll get some real producers in and do it again. And the producers came in and killed the band. Um, they just, what the, you know, it was a prog rock band they tried to turn this into bonnie wright or something you know uh, <laughs> and uh they for the drums they said okay go take a walk uh come back uh we'll we'll, we'll you know uh, come back in a couple hours when we've got your drums sounding great and so i go and take a walk and i come back in a couple hours and the drums sound fucking are you kidding dead <laughs> flap flop boom and the fat back they kept talking about a nice fat back and i said well what's a fat back well here check check out your snare <clears throat> You know, that's it's fat. Oh yes, it's fat. <laughs> it's back, but I ain't playing that. Um, and so it was a struggle right there. And the record was a dead album uh, by a killed group. Uh, and the drums, you know, it was a struggle. But you know, I guess my rebellion was to tune them way back up so high you could bring a bird down out of the sky, uh, and it would cut through too. Yeah, you know that, that was something I learned very early on is that when you get a drum sound in sound check and you, uh, you go around the top, fantastic. Okay, kick in the band and that bump you can't hear it disappears. Yeah. Uh, but bing bang bong that cuts through, and so that's yeah. why my drums were so high to cut through. Yeah, and they bounce better too. Yeah, so that that is something that. I feel like carried on into the eighties and nineties with bands like the high, the high snare was something more and more and more 
bands adopted. Well, another thing I would have to give uh, credit to Clive Stubblefield, mm-hmm. um, who also had a very high pitched snare drum sound. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's it just lively, spark more sparkly, had more energy, had more. By the way, that snare drum that we're talking about, I'm looking at it right now. It's right over here. The snare. Oh, I played all the hits on it. I played all the tours on it. Um, here it is. And so you you have a pearl snare, but a tama drums or back then yeah uh, the hoops the hoops are mismatched um i could never find another drum that had that sound so i wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night thinking it had been stolen lost or something <laughs> but finally uh tama made a signature snare drum they say well what do you want you know triple action snare release mother of pearl something you know no 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 just replicate this drum mm-hmm. um and it took many prototypes back and forth from to Japan. Uh, their metallurgists analyzed the rim, analyzed the, the radius of the hoops and the you know all this stuff. Um, and eventually, they got it right. And I now have any number of them. I can go to I can, you know I'm going to Denver tomorrow. There'll be a Tama drum set there. I've never seen it before, but it'll have that snare drum. It'll sound perfect. By the way, uh, forgive the pun, pun intended. It's a hit drum. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, you'll find it in recording studios. Uh, they'll have a Ludwig Black Beauty, and they'll have a, a SC Snare. Nice. nice. You know, for, for two completely different contrasts. You know, we need a little more high end of that. Like, pull out the Stewart. Uh, we need some depth. We need some, yeah. we need some fat back. Pull out the Ludwig. <laughs> yeah. Where do you land now on, st- on Snare Tone? You still, you still feel the same, or...? Yeah, yeah. Well, because it's so much more responsive. It has a wider vocabulary. There's more stuff you can mm-hmm. do on it. Yeah. Uh, of course, I don't need to worry about cutting through. I need to worry about not killing the orchestra. Yeah. So I've yeah. had to develop a entirely different technique for playing these drums and the cymbals as well. I have a whole completely different concept of both what cymbals to use and how to hit them. Mm. Because, you know, I hit a big rude crash and I lose the next four bars of orchestra. Yeah, yeah. What about what about the China? Do you... Nah. No, don't mess with the China? Uh, I I just... It's a lot. I haven't gotten around to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an ugly thing that sits there at a wrong angle and you know, it's, <laughs> a sort of, it's sort of dated. Sure. It's sort of... Uh, I don't use the octave. I, I go through fans. My current fad is this little tiny Latin snare. Okay. Tiny little thing, but it actually is exactly the same sound as my old uh, rim shots, my old uh, rim clicks, mm. but much easier to get to. I don't have to turn the stick around and so on. Just that drum sitting right there for just just for rim clicks. Yeah, that's great. I like that. I go through. Fa- I'll get bored of this, and you know, Tom will come out with some new shape of drum, and I'll I'll be all over that. I do have the octobands here at the studio, which I use for overdubs all the time. So back to your book. There is a. There's a few things I was unaware of with your book uh, in terms of your story. I think the biggest one that surprised me was was hearing the story of Clark Kent and how, uh, I mean, I'm already familiar with Clark Kent. I know all the songs. I had no idea that Clark Kent charted before the police. Oh, yes. That is the part that really, really shocked me. <laughs> My favorite brag. Please, let's go. Well, I mean, the first time the other blonde heads, you know, the first time the three blonde heads were on national television was as Clark Kent's backing band. And there's old Stingo in the gorilla's mask, miming 
miming my bass line. <laughs> I never miss an opportunity to remind him of that indignity. But, you know, he did kind of have his revenge mm -hmm. by writing all the big hits and he got me all over, you know, world TV. Uh, but I have that tiny little straw to, to clutch onto that I got your first television appearance. You owe it all to me. <laughs> Love that. So the police, so had you already, you released Roxanne, it didn't, it didn't, it was a flop, and then you released Don't Care? Is that the order things went in? Yes, I released it myself, back to my own record label, the Cryptone label, mm -hmm. uh, which was just me with a letter set and some art and creating a label, uh, and on the phone selling boxes. But then, a miracle happened. Radio One, national pop radio station, uh, BBC, put it on the playlist. You know, they have a weekly meeting where they listen to all the records and some make it on the list, some don't. I got on the list uh, by some quirk. Then suddenly, I, I, you, know, I, I can, you know, I can't have a hit or even sustain my radio play if I can't get records into stores. So I had to go to A&M. And Miles, by the way, was in America at that time, I think, with Squeeze. Um, and I had to go to A&M and say, look, I got this record. I got airplay. And they heard it and said, yeah, let's run. And they got that thing turned around in the deal. And by the way, let's close the deal with the band, too, because uh, they only did a singles deal for the first couple singles. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, they tied it all up. And sure enough, with A&M, able to get print the records, get them into the stores, and expand on the radio play into all the other regional stations. And I, we had a little hit. Now, okay, so how serious were you when you talk about that you were, you were keeping your identity as Clark Kent a secret? Well, absolutely secret, but it was a tough thing because yeah. I, didn't want, I didn't want it to be a secret. I wanted to brag to everybody. Um, uh, I'm only human, for God's sake. <laughs> and I was even more human then than I am now. Yeah. And so, but it was a very effective ploy. I would do my interviews for Sounds Magazine, for Melody Make, for NME, uh, and I would do it in a, in, a, in masks. And I, every every story I did, I would tell a completely different story. You know, I'm I'm, I'm an archaeologist, and I discovered these songs underneath the you know the tomb of you know Hatshepsut. You know, the next time I'm a you know, I'm a nuclear worker and there was an accident where I accidentally got too much radiation. <laughs> my brain exploded and I now speak 47 languages and, you know, whatever. Just utter, utter, utter bullshit. Uh, and and in the mask. And also the question was, you know, the zeitgeist for about five minutes was asking, who is Clark Kent? Then they thought it might be Frank Zappa or you know, or David Bowie somebody suggested. Are you kidding? American and, you know, Anyway, there are all these different theories uh, about who it was until fucking NME, they busted me. And they said, oh, it's that, it's that drummer in the fake punk rock band. <laughs> and that was it. But luckily for me, that was it for Clark Kent. Because as you can see in the diaries, I was already thinking, I don't need these guys. Yeah, yeah. You thought you were going to have a solo career. Ah, uh, screw this. I could write my own. Uh, I got the, you know, these, you know, moi, ha, ha, ha. Fortunately, uh, it sank without a trace, just in the nick of time for the police to achieve world domination. So when you when you went on Top of the Pops, you were already exposed, and they, the Top of the Pops producer... No, they didn't. I was not exposed at that time. 
they wanted to do the exposing. And that what they said to Melvin Miltos, our manager, which was Miles, also in a mask, uh, <laughs> where's Miles Copeland? Who's you? Who are you? I mean, we we, we not got to talk to Miles. No, Miles Copeland is unavailable there. I mean, Miltos, what are you talking about? <laughs> Melvin Miltos, you know, and uh, that was a, it was a scene. And they wanted to expose Clark Kent. And so every version of a mask, I know that'll scare the children. You know, we're a family show, you know, whatever. So eventually I ended up with like an exotic um, makeup that kind of sort of obscured, not. Um, and soon thereafter, NME busted me. I see. Bastards. <laughs> you know, with NME, I always had a, a hate, hate relationship with them. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, which is what I wanted to get onto their pages, but they always they were the first to spot the police's carpet baggers, and so they always took every opportunity to take swipes at us. God yeah. damn it, those fucking bastards! Anyhow, we <laughs> made it. We made it out, and we we somehow we survived the NME. And then years later, decades go by, uh, accolades, awards, world domination, all of it, and then we do the reunion tour, and I tell the publicist, ha. I'd quite like to have a word with the enemy now after all that's been <laughs> done. And, uh, and I was all planning about how I would joyfully, gleefully tear the guy to whatever journalist, you know, to shreds just for the fun of it. Cause I could. And those fucking bastards declined. Oh, Sorry. Not interested in the police. There we are playing fucking stadiums around the world and the fucking enemy. <laughs> Damn. Okay, they, okay, okay, I'll confess. There is a little love in my heart for them. Okay. <laughs> so there was one reunion I'm, I'm curious about, and then we'll let you go. Clark Kent did a little reunion in 2020 on uh, the uh, on your YouTube channel. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, Clark Kent reunion. Uh, in fact, he showed up right here and made this video. I don't know if you've seen that video. I've seen the video, yeah. But it was made with photo booth, a laptop open on the counter here. And uh, since the camera doesn't move, I discovered that you can overdub video. Mm -hmm. and, and if the if the camera hasn't moved, you run the track again and do it standing over there. And now you you know with matting, you, there's two of you or three of you or four of you. Um, and so I was able to do a Clark Kent uh, movie. Or, or, or I, you know what happens is I go to bed and I can hear strange sounds coming from the studio. And in the morning I come in and there's the smell of kind of burnt train set. You know, uh, and there's these amazing tracks just sitting there right on my desk. <laughs> it's hard to get that burnt wire smell out, though. Really? I love the video effects of the of the Clark Kent band. It's a uh, it's very un unnerving, let's just say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because of uh, the green, the green face paint, which means that you can, not, you know, see right through, you can, in between the, 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 the jack, the coat and the collar and the hat is the the back wall uh mm -hmm. you know you, it's not there you see right through it and then it's a couple of places where they overlap and you can see the other clark kent mm -hmm. in the space between the hat and the collar yeah i'm sure you know actually i was you know i'm sure it took probably about three weeks to make that thing i'm just gonna pretend that 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 sting and andy are in the backup band again <laughs> wait 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 <laughs> hang on a second andy's not tall enough and sting's not skinny enough I'm still going to believe it, though. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead.
don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. We didn't get to ask Stuart Copeland what he calls the punk beat. Hmm. Someone tells me it would have been a weird name. Yeah, I think so. He probably would have had a weird name for it. Or would he have said, that's my beat? We'd have taken ownership. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of the cool thing about, uh, you know, playing drums in the area that he played drums in is he can he can take ownership of a lot of that stuff. Yeah. He was the originator. So we had a great conversation with Stuart. It wasn't as long as our typical episode, and we didn't get to talk to him behind the curtain, but follow us behind the curtain because we have a lot to talk about. I read his whole book. I have lots and lots of notes, stuff I didn't get to ask him. So we're going to go through lots of that information, which I, and there's stuff I learned about the band I wasn't aware of. And I'm excited to have you teach it to me. I'm going to teach Adam. $5, meet us back behind the curtain. Yeah. We're going to talk about how much Aaron Carnes has been influenced by Stuart Copeland. Yes. And join us next week. Who do we have next week? Very special episode with flying raccoon suit yes everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.